Welcome to From Crisis to Prevention, Powerful Stories for Change, a podcast by RentSmart. Every episode, we'll be talking with people who are working upstream to prevent housing instability and homelessness across Canada. Working upstream in the prevention space is key to building vibrant communities. And we are your hosts, Jess and Beth. In this episode, we are speaking with Melissa Jeffrey, Program Manager at the London Housing Stability Bank through the Salvation Army Centre of Hope. Melissa started working at the Salvation Army Centre of Hope after finishing college and has been working in homelessness prevention programs for the past 10 years. The Housing Stability Bank offers financial assistance to low-income Londoners to obtain and retain their housing and offers financial assistance to those at risk of homelessness to remain housed. The Housing Stability Bank also provides grants or interest-free loans to assist with utility arrears pertaining to gas, electricity, or water. Listen in to hear Melissa share best practices on eviction prevention and how the Centre of Hope is working collaboratively with community organizations in London to address the issue of housing instability. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you just start off by telling us a bit about the Housing Stability Bank and um, a little bit about yourself as well? Sure. So uh, the Housing Stability Bank has been around since 2015. Um, It is run by the Salvation Army Centre of Hope. uh, And some of the main components of that program um, is we provide financial assistance for individuals who are facing some sort of housing crisis. So our focus of our program is to help people uh, either obtain housing or retain the housing that they're currently in. So I usually break our assistance out into two different components. We have rental assistance and utility assistance. The rental assistance piece is um, providing individuals financial assistance with either last month's rent or first month's rent, depending on their need, or rental arrears if they are currently at risk of eviction and may lose their housing as a result of unpaid rent. So all of that money is provided to individuals in the form of an interest-free loan. Um, With our utility assistance program, we offer financial assistance either as a grant or a loan, just depending on what our funding um, allows us. So we provide grant funding um, as of January, and we provide those grants up until they're exhausted, at which time we switch over to an interest-free loan program. Um, We provide up to $500 uh, for utility grants for the electricity portion of the bill. We also have funds available to provide an additional $500 grant for the water portion of utility bills and we can provide up to a $500 loan towards the electricity bill when we're in a loan phase. Um, In way of what we can provide for rental assistance, we can help with up to two months of market rent for an individual who's facing eviction for arrears, um, as well as any legal fees that are associated with the eviction. So um, in some cases, there's a filing fee or a sheriff's fee, and we can lump that in and provide that in the form of a loan um, that the individual can then repay to the program, depending kind of on what their budget allows. So usually our, um, our repayment agreements can range anywhere from 12 months to 36 months, just depending on the amount the person's borrowing and what they feel like they can accommodate in their budget. 
Um, for last month's rent, again, for individuals who are looking to secure housing within the city, uh, we can provide up to one month of market rent to allow them to complete their application and secure the unit, and then hopefully move in, um, and in some cases get a fresh start for their family. I'm curious how people are referred to uh, the program, or how do people find out about the program? Um, you know, I would say we do a lot of work. Um, we do a lot of community outreach. So we do a lot of community presentations, both um, at other partner agencies within the city. We have a lot of partnerships in the city of London, such as the London Public Libraries, and we are also on site at the Landlord Tenant Board. So um, a lot of the other community agencies that we work with do a really good job of letting people know about the program. In addition, we have landlords that we work with on a fairly regular basis. They're familiar with our program, so if they know one of their tenants is in trouble, in some cases, they, the landlord themselves will, will send them to us. Um, so we get referrals from basically anybody and everybody. We get them coming from the local MP's office, uh, churches, other departments within the Center of Hope, um, a lot of the Housing First programs within the city are also very familiar with our program and rely on it for their participants, so they'll uh, bring people to us. Um, and then as far as the intake process goes, people can either call us, email us, or walk in to schedule their appointment and or ask questions about the program. And how, how do people qualify for the program? So there is a bit of pre-screening that we do um, because we do have certain program criteria. With it being an interest-free loan program, um, we do require that individuals have a source of income. And the hope is that the income that's coming into the home would be um, enough to provide sustainability for that household. Meaning if they're receiving some form of social assistance, possibly like Ontario Works, and they're getting $700 a month, they would be looking at a rental that falls within that budget that would allow them to cover their rental expenses if, if they have to pay hydro, covering their utility costs, groceries, and covering all of those basic needs. So we go through some pre-screening with the individuals, determine what it is that they're looking for help with, um, kind of financially what they're looking for, and then from there we can kind of make a determination and book the appointment. Once the appointment's been scheduled, we kind of dive into things a little bit deeper. So we'll ask that individual to bring with them proof of their income, their ID for themselves and their family members, uh, two months of bank statements, as well as any monthly bills that they may pay on a regular basis. And part of the application process is, you know, obviously gathering their, their demographic information, but we also do a budget with them. So we'll look at what their monthly income is and we'll look at, after going through a budget with them and discussing certain budget items, we'll look at their expenses, kind of do a comparison. So is their income meeting their expenses? Meaning, would this be a sustainable housing long-term? Um, and if we have reason to believe it would be, because the numbers are, are driving, then we can go ahead and we can approve the application. Uh, once the application's approved, we do communicate everything directly with the landlords as well. So usually we get a hold of them and we can confirm the amount owing, whether it's for last month's rent or however many months they're behind in arrears. Let them know kind of the financial assistance that we're looking at providing. And then 
once the application is approved, we provide written confirmation in the form of an approval letter to that landlord in writing confirming that the program will be providing X number of dollars for that person's tenancy. Um, and then from there, everything kind of gets taken over by our finance department and landlords are typically paid either by check or by electronic funds transfer, depending on what their preference is. Wow. Um, Melissa, can you, you mentioned about the landlord engagement. Mm -hmm. How are you, how does that look for you guys? Are you like going out and talking to landlord, um, like landlord organizations or? How are they finding out about the program? Yeah, I mean, I would say we do have the benefit of a lot of um, historical knowledge. So um, prior to this program being in its current, you know, in its current form, uh, there was a program available within the city that was called the Rent Bank Program, which uh, the Salvation Army also administered. So we do have a pre-existing relationship with a lot of landlords already that are familiar with you know, previous programs that we've administered. Um, I would say, you know, for, for new landlords that aren't familiar with our program or who've never heard of us before, there is that little bit of education piece that has to come. Um, I mean, some landlords are a little skeptical, uh, rightly so. They think it's a little uh, too good to be true that this organization is calling them and wanting to pay one of their tenants' rent. Um, but it's basically kind of providing them information about the program and how we operate, what we can provide. Uh, we do have promotional materials like our flyer. We have our website uh, and our Facebook page. So if they're looking to kind of validate that information in any way, we can provide them direction to those things as well. Um, and like I said before, we're also present at our local landlord tenant board office. So the intention of that is, is we have a housing stability bank worker on site. So for individuals who are going through the landlord tenant board, facing eviction for rental arrears, um, usually when you get to the landlord tenant board, you've got a few different options. You can go through and, you know, state your case in front of the the, the board. Uh, you can offer or have the option of going through a mediated agreement, which is like a payment plan with your landlord that you can both sign off on. And then the other option is you can talk to our housing stability bank worker and see if there might be some financial assistance available to get the rental arrears paid. So I think being at that location alone, we're kind of, you know, were recognized there because um, a lot of landlord representatives are at the landlord tenant board as well. So they're familiar with our program. Um, they know our staff and a lot of them have gotten funds from us in the past, especially some of the bigger companies because they own multiple properties um, are, are fairly familiar with us. Usually where we have to do a little bit more work in kind of educating and explaining our program and how it works is to a lot of the private landlords. Um, who may only have one rental house and might be new to the rental market or have just never had a tenant fall behind in rent before. Um, so if that's the case, our workers are pretty good about getting a hold of them, answering any questions they may have. Um, and I think, too, you know, the fact that, you know, we say we're from the Salvation Army um, can put a lot of people at ease um, because a lot of people are familiar with the Salvation Army and recognize its name as well. So, um, I think that benefits us. Melissa, can you tell us a story um, about the Housing Stability Bank in action, like a success story? Sure. So I can give you a couple different examples. Um, one, I would say, focuses on 
the ability of our staff to kind of recognize uh, certain things when they're meeting with individuals or point out certain things to the individuals that are coming through the door that could really benefit them. Um, Because in addition to providing the financial assistance, we also try really hard to work on kind of educating individuals about other services that they may be able to utilize within the city for other needs that they have. Um, we educate a lot of people on their rights as tenants. So what does a residential tenancies act mean for a tenant? Um, and how does the eviction process work? And the other thing that we do, and it comes in line with some of the budgeting work that we do with individuals in the appointment. Um, we had one gentleman come into our intake desk and he had brought with him his bank statements and was asking a few questions to our intake worker. And when she was looking through his bank statements, uh, she said, oh, I noticed you have a savings account. Um, Like, do you have bank statements for your savings account? And he said, I don't have a savings account. (laughs) And she was like, oh, no, like you you do. Uh, If you look, you can see um, he had signed up for a program where the bank automatically rounds up your transaction to the nearest dollar. And then it puts that money into a savings account automatically. So it's kind of like a hands-off, thought-free way of saving money. Um, So she said, look at all of these roundups. So all of these are going into another account. And he insisted that he didn't have another bank account and he was extremely confused. So he left our office. He went down to the bank. uh, He spoke with the bank teller, got a printout of his other bank statement for this unknown account, came back to our office, and he was extremely excited because he had found out he had $300 in a savings account he didn't even know that existed, and it was enough to pay off the hydro arrears that he had come to us for help with. Um, so it's it's that piece about noticing things and then, you know, working through the issue and trying to educate people. So he came in that day not realizing he had a savings account, and he left with his hydro arrears paid and I think an extra 50 bucks in his pocket. And he was extremely happy about that. Um, So I think for some people it's, it's, I mean, trying to work with them on improving some of their financial literacy um, because a lot of people don't look at their bank statements. Um, You know, sometimes people say, well, I know I have no money. So what's the point in checking, but you know, kind of going through those with people, it gives you an opportunity to point out things like, you know, maybe they have really high bank fees. So is there a different kind of account that you can sign up for that will save you money on your bank fees or you're getting a lot of NSF charges? So how can we work to prevent further NSF charges? Because that gets very expensive in the long run. Um, one of the other individuals that we had worked with um he had been sleeping rough for a very long time, um, years. So he hadn't been housed stably in an apartment for a long time. And the reason he was sleeping rough was because he had a pet. So he had a, a fairly large dog and the dog was basically his best friend and his only companion. And, um, unfortunately the homeless shelters in the city aren't really equipped to take in animals. So as a result of not being able to get into a shelter with his pet, he opted to then sleep on the street and, um, down by our local river. So he had come in and understanding kind of his situation with winter approaching, uh, we worked very hard to try and pair him up with other programs in the community that provide a little bit more of the ongoing wraparound support. 
um, and case management that our program's unable to do. And in collaboration with them, we were able to secure him a one-bedroom apartment um, that he moved into actually just a couple of weeks ago, and that was his first apartment in years. Um, and when he was finally approved for the apartment and we confirmed we were going to pay the last month's rent, he was extremely emotional. Uh, we were extremely emotional. There was a lot of hugging and celebration. And now he's going to be in his apartment for the first time over Christmas in years. And he's extremely thrilled about that. That was kind of the Christmas gift that he wanted to give his dog is that they were going to have a warm place to stay for the winter. Um, and he knew, you know, he had a spot that he could go to every night and kind of lay his head and he wouldn't have to worry about some of the other issues that come along with, you know, sleeping rough um, and, and really having no place to go and no place for your belongings to go. So basically everything he owned, he had to carry with him every day. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's something that you can put your finger on that makes your work so effective? I think the fact that our program assists, I would say, a fairly diverse group of people. Um, I mean, we can help individuals who are uh, like the gentleman I just spoke about, staying in the shelter or sleeping on the street and helping them transition from homelessness to housing. But we also help individuals who are already housed in our community, but may be precariously housed. Um, and they may be encountering a financial crisis that could result in them losing their housing. So I think the fact that, you know, we work with anybody from the individuals who are street homeless to those who may be considered the working poor. Um, and I think we also try to work really hard uh, on working collaboratively with a lot of the other community agencies and programs that exist in our city. Our program complements a lot of the work that's already taking place um, that's focused on a housing first approach. And we work closely with a lot of the other homeless prevention initiatives within the city. And what we do is we kind of provide that financial component that they need to support that individual in their transition, whatever that might be. So in the end, you know, we're all kind of working towards the same goal. So it's like, how can we work together to get the best possible outcome for the individuals that we're trying to serve? Um, And I would also say, you know, in addition to the financial component that we're providing, a lot of our staff have an excellent knowledge base of the other local service providers and agencies and the work that they do. So then they can make referrals and warm transfers and connections to those programs that help to meet the other needs that our applicants have. Um, so our staff spend a good time, a good amount of time with the applicants that we have in the office, kind of connecting them to other services um, you know, that do things that, that our program doesn't do, such as meal programs and food banks and an example like our Christmas hamper program. Um, and I would also say, you know, we've, we've got um, some funds through Prosper Canada that's allowed us to hire two staff in the form of money coaches. So in addition to the basic budgeting conversation that happens in the appointment, we have staff available that can do um, a little bit more of an ongoing bit of work with the individual to go over different budgeting strategies, um, making sure that they've got all of their benefit entitlements, they can help them set up a direct deposit with their bank account, 
help them register for the Canada Learning Bond or um, an RESP. So it kind of helps to improve the financial literacy of the individual and kind of build their capacity a little bit um, and provide them a little bit of extra support that they might need in kind of working through some of their monthly expenses. And they as well also kind of leverage a lot of the other community agencies in the city. So, you know, if you've got somebody in front of you that's spending $200 on groceries, is there programs that you can connect them with that would allow them to spend maybe $150 and save that $50? So you've you've kind of found $50 in your budget. So what are we going to use that $50 for going forward? Can you save a portion of it? Or maybe that will allow you to pay your hydro in full the following month. And so it's kind of coming up with different strategies about how you can leverage what's available in the community to offset some of your expenses that will then kind of lend itself to, um, you know, an improvement to overall affordability of that person's lifestyle. Melissa, you've talked about the diversity of um, the folks that are accessing the Housing Stability Bank. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit to the need. Like, what are you seeing in terms of the cause of housing instability in your community? I mean, what I would say is that a lot of the individuals who are on a fixed income um, don't necessarily have the opportunity to have the disposable money to put any amount in savings. So for some households, um, you know, an, an incident such as falling behind with your hydro or a car repair or even providing back to school supplies for your child can be enough of a financial burden that it, it doesn't allow them to pay their rent in full. So I think, you know, the amounts that people are allowed on social assistance, so in our Ontario Works and our Ontario Disability Support Program, there's not a lot of extra built into that. So people are really struggling to find housing that's affordable on those budgets. Um, and it may mean because they can't find, you know, a safe one-bedroom unit, they may be moving into housing situations that are not ideal. So there might be, you know, health and safety concerns um, related to the quality of housing. Um, but in some cases, people say, this is all that I can afford. Uh, mm -hmm. And they don't want to raise an issue with the landlord um, because they don't want to be evicted for that reason. So um, I think it's just a struggle for people to find affordable housing that fits within their budget. Um, one of the other things that we're finding is that for those individuals who have experienced, say, chronic homelessness, um, once you've actually become homeless, there seems to be an increase in the barriers to accessing safe and affordable housing. So something as simple as losing your ID in the shelter can prevent you from being able to complete a rental application. Um, and things that can seem really simple to do can actually be like a major hurdle or a major barrier for somebody who has been homeless or sleeping rough for a very long time. Um, something as simple as, you know, providing references on your rental application from previous landlords could be a huge problem if you haven't had a landlord in five, six years. Um, 
And, you know, if you if you weren't able to provide references or you're having difficulty completing that application in full with the information they require, that may impact how that landlord looks at you. And it may impact whether or not you get that unit or not. Um, and for the working poor, I think, you know, those folks try really hard to kind of stay one or two steps ahead of of anything that may come up, but they are living paycheck to paycheck and a small unexpected expense could result in losing their, their housing. Because if every dollar that you earn has to go towards your, your living costs, your house, your rent, your utilities, and your food, you really don't have the opportunity to save up for those unexpected expenses. Um, and I would also say too, you know, we have seen those people who come through the door who used to be gainfully employed uh, and through really no fault of their own, they've experienced, whether it's been a mental health crisis or they've gotten into some sort of accident or they've had an injury that affects their ability to work and they've basically lost everything, they're now attempting to access different services and navigate a system that's completely foreign to them. Um, so for a lot of those folks who've, you know, this is kind of their first time experiencing poverty, they don't really know where to begin. Melissa, just sort of stepping back, I know previous in our conversation, you were talking about all of the different programs and organizations that you work with in the community. So it kind of sounds like you're referring out and people are referring um, into your program. Are there any in particular that you want to mention that you think are um, doing good work in the community? I mean, I would say a lot of the Housing First programs within the city are really um, taking a focus on those individuals who have experienced long-term and chronic homelessness, um, and they may also be suffering from, from other issues such as mental health issues or addiction issues that also act as another barrier to housing. So uh, the Housing First programs kind of focus in on that, that target group of people and provide them a level of support and um, assistance that I think without it, a lot of those individuals would remain in their current circumstance. So, you know, our, like I said, our, our program is kind of that financial transaction where those programs kind of act as providing that wraparound support to help that person locate housing, um, help them facilitate their move-in, connecting them with programs like ours that can provide the financial piece, and then also providing the follow-up work that needs to happen when you move somebody who maybe hasn't lived in an apartment for a really long time, um, how to get those people set up so they can be successful in their unit. So teaching them things like, what does it mean to be a good tenant? Um, how do you make sure you're paying your bills every month? How do you make sure your rent gets paid every month? Um, proper housekeeping and self-care. Um, and I think a lot of people without that type of intensive support and that intensive case management would face, you know, they just wouldn't be successful in their housing. And, and it still happens that, you know, somebody's moved into a house and they're stable for a period of time and something occurs and then they have to do a rapid rehousing. But I think, you know, even for somebody who's been homeless for years, if they're successful in living in an apartment for six or eight months, we would consider that success because it's six or eight months going in the right direction. So I think it's just being able to provide people the support and teaching them some of the life skills that they need in order to live independently. Melissa, you talked a lot about the work you're doing um, 
on a community level. Mm-hmm. And when I was at CAEH in London, I guess three years ago, I kind of, I got the sense that London does work from a really strong community based approach yeah. and like quite collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any suggestions for people who are listening um, from other communities in Canada on how to work effectively on a community level? I mean, I think uh, the City of London's Homeless Prevention Team has done a really good job of making sure that the right people are in the room uh, for the right conversations. Like I said, we're all working to serve the same population, uh, and we all have the same goals. So it's about kind of taking stock on what different programs are doing and how you can leverage that to work together in a better way, in a more efficient way, and in a much smarter way. Um, So you're not necessarily duplicating services, but you are working in collaboration with. And it may mean, you know, kind of um, reevaluating your existing practices or processes to better meet the needs of the individuals coming through some of those other programs. So um, I would say communication and collaboration, and I think... Like I said, the City of London has done a great job of, of facilitating that as well. Um, most recently, they have introduced um, the Homeless Management Information System, which is a shared database among all of the uh, homeless shelters and some of the homeless-serving organizations, such as the Housing First Program. So the intention behind that was, you know, we're all working in different organizations, but we're all serving the same client population. We kind of share clients, you could say. So, you know, somebody may be accessing services from two or three programs. So it makes sense that we would have a centralized location that we can put that information so that person isn't going from one agency to the next and having to re-explain their story and kind of rehash some of those issues. It'll all be right there for you to see so that when that person comes in, you've already got a good understanding and a good background on the services they're already connected with. Um, which can make it a little bit easier to serve that person and make the appropriate referrals and connections. Um, and I also think, too, it can be beneficial to reduce the, the duplication of work as well. So I would say the shared uh, database has been has been big. Um, the Housing Stability Bank is kind of in the process right now of kind of working to also get on board. Um, our program is is much different than all the programs that are on there already with it being a loan program. So our needs are a little bit different, but again, if we can share the information um, amongst, you know, the larger group, it benefits everybody because it just allows you to access the information at your fingertips. Absolutely. That's a very effective way to run things for sure. Um, Melissa, for other organizations who might be thinking about starting up a um, housing stability bank or, or something similar, do you have any um, lessons learned from the past few years that that your program has been running? Um, I mean, uh, I would say, you know, over the course of the years, we've 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 learned quite a bit. Um, one of the things that I would say we are still trying to figure out um, and is still kind of on the top of our list is our loan recovery. So with it being uh, an interest-free loan program, there is an expectation of repayment from the applicants that get service. So what we're trying to do right now is determine, you know, 
at what point did people maybe stop paying their loans? Um, the goal of our program is to hopefully recover enough money um, through our loan recovery that it would then fund the program. And we haven't quite gotten to that point yet, but what we're looking at trying to do is how can we incentivize people to want to pay their housing stability bank loan? Um, we understand, you know, the individuals that we're serving work on a, an extremely fixed income. So we try to make our repayments as flexible as possible. Um, again, the fact that it's interest-free is great because if you take three years or one year or two year to pay it off, it doesn't impact the amount that you owe. So I think just understanding kind of the limitations of the population that you're serving, um, trying to find, you know, what speaks to them as far as what would make them want to pay off their loan when they've got four or five other expenses to cover, what's going to make them choose to pay off their housing stability bank loan. Um, and all the money that we recover does go right back into the program. So I think for a lot of people, when they are making their loan payments, they, they do feel good about it because they know that money is going to help the next person, you know, down the road uh, with whatever financial crisis they might be facing. So it's kind of one of those things that, like I said, we're still trying to figure out um, how to measure and uh, how to leverage the population in a way that, you know, we make sure that we're recovering the funds that are going out the door. Um, but we also don't want to be necessarily um, to a financial detriment of the applicants that are making the repayments. So providing a lot of flexibility uh, in that sense, we can take payments in the form of cash or debit at our, uh, our on-site location. We also allow people to set up an electronic funds transfer where the funds come out of their bank account should they have one. So um, I think it also comes with recognizing that, you know, not everybody is going to have a bank account um, just because of other things that they may they may not have ID to secure a bank account. So you're going to have to kind of make exceptions to the rule and have kind of, you know, our, our hope is that everybody pays through their bank, but we understand the individuals we're serving don't have access to banks. So we will take a cash payment um, or, you know, a sporadic payment if and when they're in the neighborhood and they can make that payment. So, um, you know, we operate under our criteria and our program rules, but I always say, you know, people's lives aren't black and white. Therefore, our program cannot be black and white. So as much as we do have set program criteria um, and we pre-screen people according to that, we also have what we call exceptional circumstances. So for everything, um, there's an exceptional circumstance. And so if we are talking to somebody on the phone or in person and they may not qualify for the program for whatever reason, maybe um, they've, we require somebody who's been in the city for at least six months, but maybe they've just relocated from another community and they've only been in the city for three weeks, um, but they're staying in shelter with their family we would consider that to be an exceptional circumstance because there's an urgent and compelling need there that would warrant us going outside of our regular criteria to then offer that person the assistance that they need to get themselves out of shelter and into stable housing. So, you know, I guess be open-minded and be flexible uh, in as many ways as possible. And I would also say meeting people where they're at, um, and I mean that in a, like a physical sense. So, 
we have our, our main office location, but we also partner with the London Public Library, and we can see people at a number of library locations throughout the city. So it's removing those barriers that people may face in accessing your program. For some people who have you know their last $3 left, you don't necessarily want them to spend that on a bus ticket to come down to do their appointment for a loan. Um, so if we can make the, a program available in uh, a location that's friendly and welcoming and familiar to them and they can walk around the block to their London Public Library uh, and get their appointment done there, that again removes that barrier um, and lets them just have an ease to access the service in a way that they may not otherwise be able to. Because sometimes it can be intimidating um, to ask for help. And if we are an organization that they're not familiar with, um, that can be a little unnerving. So if we can, you know, redirect them to their, their local library and they go there all the time and, you know, their kids can come and read books and play with toys while they do their appointment, I think it can help kind of put people's mind at ease and uh, it makes the whole thing a little bit less intimidating. Yeah, that's great. Very accessible. If people want to get in contact or learn more, is your website the best way? Yeah, so they, they can find our program um, at the Center of Hope website. Um, we also have the Salvation Army Center of Hope Facebook page, which we post on. Uh, we do post on Twitter as well. Um, and we also make available on our website, like our flyers and some of our promotional materials as well. Perfect. I was impressed. A lot of your, bro I saw a lot of your brochures are in a bunch of different languages. Yeah, again, and I think that speaks to our attempt to try and be accessible to people. Um, you know, I would say we do see a number of people coming through the program, and a lot of them are are Spanish speaking, and a lot of them may be claiming refugee status. Um, so it can be difficult to try and communicate with somebody when there's such a language barrier. Um, but if we can provide written material in their language, uh, again, it just makes sure that the information's out there to those folks who need it the most. Um, and we also work with a lot of uh, Arabic-speaking individuals at some of our uh, libraries that are paired up with community resource centers. So, you know, we kind of saw a need within the program, and as a result, we had our flyer translated. And again, it's all about accessibility and removing the barrier. So, Melissa, we like to ask um, a our final question, and um, just to find out what does home mean to you? Uh, I would say home to me, I would say my pets <laughs> are a big part of what home means to me. Um, I have three dogs, so they uh, are always the welcoming committee when I come home. So I think <laughs> it's... Um, it's just that ability to have kind of a safe space, a comfortable space that you can make your own. And I think also the predictability that it lends to have, you know, you know you're going home at the end of the day and you know what to expect. Um, and you're able to kind of, you know, make your home your own. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Melissa. Thank you very much for having me.
Thanks as always to the Vancouver Foundation for their support of this podcast.